Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. In this podcast, we explore some of the more complex matters across tax, economics, regulation, and compliance. Each month, we meet with KPMG's foremost experts and other special guests to unpack key issues faced by taxpayers around the globe. Hello. And welcome to today's podcast, where we're going to focus on some recent draft legislation that's been much anticipated regarding thin capitalisation, which uh, is seeking to implement and align with the OECD's BEPS Action Item 4, and uh, was a measure announced by the government in its October 2022 budget. So um, we only recently saw the exposure draft legislation um, and there is a a brief period of consultation until 13 April 2023 before the measures are expected to be introduced to Parliament with an intended start date applying to income years beginning on or after 1 July 2023. So there's a pretty short runway um, for quite a significant change in the rules um, and, and a number of complex issues need to be considered. Which, uh, which we're going to talk about today. Um, so, so just setting the scene around that, um, Australia's approach is quite interesting as we're looking to adopt action item for almost eight years after they were originally released. Um, and we're doing it in a hybrid manner because we're changing some parts of our existing thin capitalisation rules and, and, and doing that by grafting the changes onto the existing legislative rules while also leaving them unchanged for certain types of entities. So with such a short period and a lot to consider, um, we'll briefly touch on some of the key highlights and issues identified to date and what groups in different sectors should start thinking about. So I'm Peter Oliver. I'm an international tax partner with KPMG. And today I'm very grateful to be in the company of my colleagues. I have Dennis Larkin with me, um, fellow international tax partner, Sophie Lewis, transfer pricing partner, Um, Julian Humphrey, a financial services tax partner, and Scott Farrell, who's a deals tax partner specialising in asset management and real assets. So welcome, team. Um, Thanks for making the time to be with us today. Why don't we start by talking a little bit about a couple of measures that actually aren't thin capitalisation. And whilst everybody's talking about thin cap, there's two really important changes that are almost gateways to the amount of debt and uh, deductions related to debt that you'll have. First of all, Dennis, um, there's a change that was a surprise relating to deductibility um, of interest on debt funding offshore um, subsidiaries and operations. Can you tell us a bit about that? Thanks, Peter. And you're quite right, it was unexpected. So one of the things which came through the legislation, and it was only a few few words really in the draft legislation, was to significantly reduce the scope of a provision which allows Australian taxpayers to claim a deduction for borrowings in respect of offshore equity. And that's that's offshore equity that derives non-accessible dividends back in Australia. Um, the reason why that's an important provision naturally is because our basic deduction provision does not allow a taxpayer to take a deduction for expenses incurred in deriving non-accessible income. And so this particular provision in question, which is known as Section 2590, did allow an Australian taxpayer to take a deduction where they were borrowing to fund an offshore investment that would give them non-accessible dividends. Um, the rules have been changed in the draft legislation such that probably the most predominant um, type of non-accessible dividend um, is, is now going to be no longer in those rules. So borrowing to fund most foreign subsidiaries is essentially now no longer going to be giving rise to deductible uh, deductions in Australia. Uh, and that's a big surprise because A, it wasn't really foreshadowed in the budget announcements from last year. 
But secondly, um, it, it does sort of require Australian taxpayers now with outbound subsidiaries to do a big sort of analysis as to where their debt is actually going. And that, that's something that hasn't been needed for a number of years. So this provision we're talking about has been around for about 20 years. Um, people have had to sort of consider what's my foreign uh, borrowings versus my Australian borrowings. Um, so that's going to sort of have quite a big uh, impact, I think, on, on taxpayers needing to work out where, where their debt actually relates to um, which, which sort of investments. And Dennis, that, that can be quite a challenge, I imagine, for groups who may have refinanced debt over a very lengthy period and haven't needed to think about source and usage of debt funding. That's correct, Peter. It's sort of been, as you said, something which has not really been a consideration for a long time because all, all debt in some regards is treated equally in that respect. So it is going to sort of require a lot of work. And I think it's probably fair to say that a number of taxpayers won't have done that exercise previously. So I suppose we do await to see whether the Australian Taxation Office comes out with any companion guidelines that might give us some, some practical tips as to how that might be done. Um, but I think if, if nothing else, it is going to require taxpayers to go back and at least try to somehow make sense of, of what their borrowings are funding. Um, in addition, sort of what sort of income they're actually deriving from their offshore subsidiaries as well. So there is a really significant piece of sort of prior year work to do and understand. Um, but also I think it's important to understand going forward how you start to fund um, future acquisitions. So if you're if you're funding offshore investments going forward, you know, do you start to take that debt out in the local country in which you're doing the investment as well, rather than simply borrowing from Australia? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because uh, both uh, obviously some significant um, historical complex complexities that need to be thought about, but forward-looking, looking at growth um, and uh, any time you look at offshore expansion or acquisitions, there's a question of funding, where is cash in a corporate group, um, where should debt be raised, um, and, and, and I think that becomes even more acute, that question where debt should be raised if interest deductions may not be um, available in Australia on debt used to find used to um, you from an Australian um, parent used to fund an offshore acquisition so that's a really important point looking forward okay um, thanks Dennis um, so that's that's really really important now there's a second piece and Sophie this one's right up your alley um, for up to now people haven't really needed to worry about the quantum of debt under transfer pricing. It's always been thought about as what about your rate of interest on debt and arm's length conditions associated with debt. But we're seeing a proposed change here, aren't we, Sophie? Yeah, that, that's right, Peter. So there are really big changes for transfer pricing in that the safe harbour protections that were afforded to the quantum of debt under the previous thin cap rules have been removed. And just as a recap, in the previous regime, an arm's length interest rate needed to be determined based on the arm's length capital structure, but was then applied to all of the debt actually issued and the thin cap rules were overlaid to ensure that quantum of debt was appropriate. However, with the new rules, um, then they're really not safe harbours, but rather ceilings from which transfer pricing rules can be applied. As part of any transfer pricing analysis, clients will now need to support not only the arm's length nature of the interest rate applied to the debt, but also the quantum of the debt itself. Now, this is going to be really interesting, particularly from an ATO compliance perspective, and we can expect to see increased scrutiny in this space. The ATO has been wanting to test the arm's length nature of the quantum of related party debt for some time, and it sought to test this by either arguing Part 4A or by trying to argue one of the exceptions under the transfer pricing rules. 
This has been known as the annihilation approach, where they've tried to argue that all debt should be annihilated, or the all equity argument. And it's likely that the ATO will view this new measure as having a much lower threshold test, making it easier to challenge intercompany financing, particularly where the mix of debt and equity may be in question. Um, I think it's it's also in, important to note that as foreshadowed in the budget announcement, the arms length debt test will no longer be available. And in its place, taxpayers can choose to apply a much narrower test called the external third party debt test, which I'm sure is going to be discussed a little bit later. Um, but this is also relevant for transfer pricing purposes, as Australian businesses that raise external debt using a guarantee from their global parent may be excluded from applying this test. And this will impact both traditional guarantees, but as but also performance guarantees, which we sometimes see in large infrastructure projects. And this might have a, a significant impact on foreign investment. And it is something we're looking to bring to Treasury's attention as part of the consultation process. Thanks, Safi. Um, so, so, you know, a fair bit to think about there. And, and I know leading up to, before we saw the exposure draft, um, some conversations with clients where it was very focused on the fixed ratio, 30% of EBITDA approach. Um, but as you've said, if the quantum of debt now needs to be considered from an arm's length perspective under the transfer pricing rules, you could have a scenario where you might be very profitable in a part of an economic cycle, um, but perhaps the quantum of debt, whilst the interest may be okay under 30% of an EBITDA measure, that quantum of debt may not be okay. So it's an interesting um, interesting contrast and, and um, mix of things to consider. Yeah, that, that's right, Peter. And, and I think that that's going to bring that additional complexity when considering that debt equity mix and thinking about as, as you mentioned, the cycle of profitability and, and what might seem appropriate today might not be appropriate in, in two or three or five years' time. So it's it's going to just bring that additional analysis um, that wasn't really required before. Excellent. And I thought that part of the um, moving to the third-party debt test from Arthlink test was to um, make it simpler to, uh, to comply. So much to keep in mind. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Sophie. Um, so they're good points. So, Julian, let's turn to you. Um, there's a lot in the exposure draft. Could you please tell us a bit about the highlights? What are the key things in there that were expected that we've got and, and what might have been missed? Yeah, thanks, Peter. Um, I, I mean, what we've got in the exposure draft are the three tests that were foreshadowed in the budget announcement by the government, and, and that is... Um, this shift away from our existing balance sheet approach whereby the amount of debt that you have is a, is a function of um, the assets of the taxpayer to one where um, the amount of interest that you can deduct is, is effectively a function of the earnings. And so in the um, exposure draft, we've got the fixed ratio rule or the fixed ratio test that you talked about. Um, that is 30% of um, your tax EBITDA. So you take your taxable income for the year, add back your net interest deductions, add back certain of your depreciation amortisation numbers for tax um, and any tax losses from prior years um, to, to calculate a tax EBITDA. 
and your interest deductions are limited to 30% of this uh, of that number. Um, in addition to that um, fixed ratio test, the 30% of EBITDA, we've also now got visibility of the group ratio test. So the group ratio test allows a, a multinational group to use effectively the ratio of its net interest expense to accounting EBITDA in its global consolidated accounts to come up with a, um, a ratio and apply that ratio to um, the tax EBITDA of the taxpayer in Australia. Now, um, that might sound like it's a reasonably simple process in terms of picking up numbers in global financial accounts and doing a calculation, but um, the, the way the test has been written in the exposure draft has a number of integrity measures built into that and adjustments that you need to make that, that actually make it quite complex and quite difficult, um, in fact, for large multinational groups. And just one example of those, Peter, is um, a requirement in calculating the group's um, EBITDA to actually exclude um, or back out any legal entity in that group that on a standalone basis had negative EBITDA. So that's going to be quite a difficult exercise in a, in a large multinational group. And then the third test that, um, that we've got visibility of now is, is the one that Sophie mentioned, and that is the external third-party debt test. And um, again, there's just a number of integrity measures built into that test um, and your ability to use it. And these include things like um, all associates determined at a 10% threshold um, of the taxpayer in Australia need to use that test in order for um, in, in order for the, a, a particular taxpayer to be able to use it. So it's sort of an all-in from an associate perspective on that test, and and you can't um, you can't pick and choose um, between different taxpayers in your group. So those are the three tests. Um, they apply to entities that would have under uh, or are under the existing rules effectively inward or outward general um, classified um, thin cap entities. Um, in addition to the tests, we have had an expansion of the definition of debt deductions. So previously debt deductions were limited to um, amounts that related to instruments that satisfied um, the debt test for tax purposes, that requirement to be um, to be paid in respect of something that is tax debt has been removed. And so basically now any payment calculated by reference to the time value of money um, forms part of the deductible base that can be um, adjusted by the ThinkCap rules. Um, so, Pete, that's what we got. Um, what we didn't get that perhaps we were expecting or thought might be there was any type of grouping rules. And um, 
you know, one of the things that grouping rules do, it's a bit like the tax consolidated rate, the tax consolidation regime. In some senses, they're a compliance saving measure, but in others, they're an integrity measure. And so there is no capacity to pass um, or, 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 or there are no rules to allow the passing of capacity between um, related entities. Um, but at the same time, there are no rules that stop effectively um, the ability to um, duplicate or, or count multiple times the same income. So, for example, um, income in a subsidiary would support an interest deduction at the subsidiary level, um, a dividend then paid to a parent um, that was either franked or unfranked and is included in the parent's assessable income, um, that dividend itself then being able to um, support interest deductions at the parent. So whether that's intended or not, it's, it's difficult to say, but we don't have any sort of grouping rules at this point, um, either from from point of view of being able to pass capacity around or prevent what might be seen as some inappropriate outcomes in terms of um, ability to duplicate. Thanks, Julian. Um, and, and I think that picking up that that point, there, there's some things that aren't in it, as you mentioned, around grouping that perhaps reflect there's been a, a kind of, there's a core focus on these rules of kind of getting the basics in and trying to get them uh, right. Um, we'll talk to Scott in a minute um, about what that means when you move out of corporates, because it, it does really very much look like it's been written for, for corporate entities and corporate groups and not so much trusts. Um, coupled with that around you know, keeping it at a core level is there was nothing in this around any concessions, carve-outs, recognitions of different industries or sectors, um, but there is a carry-forward of disallowed amounts, isn't there, Julian? Yeah, that, that's right, Peter. And so we do have um, the ability, if you are applying the group ratio test um, and you continue to apply the group ratio test and therefore effectively all of your associates apply the group ratio test um, for you to carry forward up to 15 years um, the, the deductions that have been denied and claim them at a time in the future where your net interest deductions um, are actually below um, your deduction limit. Um, that carry forward, Peter, is subject, if it's in a corporate, to um, continuity of ownership testing in the same way losses are, but um, as a point of distinction with the rules around um, tax losses, there is no access to the continuity of business tests. So um, whereas on a change of ownership, you can carry forward losses if you can satisfy continuity of business, um, in the case of the carry forward of any excess um, deductions that have been denied under um, the fixed ratio rule, um, they, they are simply subject to a continuity of ownership test. Okay. And as you mentioned, Julian, um, in order to carry those forward, you've got to keep applying the fixed ratio test. So there are choices here to be made. Um, and there's a choice every year between fixed ratio, um, the group ratio approach, or the third party test, but consequences, as you've said, uh, in losing the carry forward. So you can see 
um, in weighing up those choices, questions of value and modeling are going to be really important, which perhaps we can talk about a bit later um, when we recap around things that um, the group should be thinking about. So, so that's a really good summary. Thanks, Julian. Let's let's go across to you, Scott. Um, and as I mentioned before, uh, where you play around asset management, particularly real assets and trusts, there are some real issues here given the rules have been, you know, as far as we can see, written for a, a corporate group. That's, that's right, Peter. And because we're in the real asset sector, we are dealing with capital intensive investments that typically use unit trusts. There are some real issues. And whilst the tests, the new rules allow three different tests, from a real assets perspective, effectively, you've really only got the fixed ratio test. Um, because it's really difficult for trust groups to fit within either of the other two. So picking up on the external third-party debt test, the, the first issue with that is that typically in trust groups we'll have a borrowing at a holding trust level secured against the assets of subsidiary trusts, and that immediately falls foul of one of the integrity provisions in the external third-party lender test because one of the requirements is that the borrower can only secure their own assets. The second real practical difficulty is, as Julian mentioned, that with the associate test being a 10% threshold and requiring all associates to make the, that external third-party debt election, there's, real, there's going to be real practical difficulties in trying to verify every year whether all associates and their associates have met that test. So, so that really means that in the way it's drafted at the moment, it's, it's almost impossible for that test to, to be used. Um, unless you've really got a single asset trust investment. With the group ratio test, Julian mentioned that one of the requirements there is you need to consolidate entities on a line-by-line -line basis. With fund investments, um, picking up the, the accounting standard relating to investments, it's quite common for investments to be mark-to-market rather than consolidated on a line-by-line -line basis. And so even without looking at some of the other difficulties raised on that test, again, it's difficult to satisfy that test. So that, so that leaves us with the fixed ratio test. I think it's worthwhile pointing out that unlike the existing safe harbour rules, we don't push up excess capacity so that you need to look at the, the debt capacity at an individual entity level. And so that does mean that your debt capacity at a holding trust level will be less than at an asset level because if I'm looking at the debt capacity at an asset level and I'm working out my tax EBITDA, as Julian mentioned, I do add back the, the DAR, the depreciation and amortisation, and so that will increase my debt capacity. If I'm gearing at a holding trust level, then 
my taxable income distributed is net of the depreciation and amortisation so that the debt capacity is, is less. Now, Julian did mention the possibility of gearing at multiple levels, and, and I think that's something that seems to be open, subject to what Sophie might say about the transfer pricing overlay as to what an arm's length level of debt is in the context of that sort of, that sort of structure. Where that, where that leads you, I think, is given the current interest rate environment and the sort of yields we're seeing in the market on sectors like office and retail and industrial, it's, it's very easy for real asset investors to breach that fixed ratio test such that there's denials that they're looking to, to carry forward. I think that where we're dealing with real estate investments, then you can see some capital gains that might be realised that might allow you to utilise some of that denied deductions in the future. Um, but on the other hand, in infrastructure, where you have investments that, particularly ones that might not be taxable Australian real property assets, in that situation, it's going to be almost impossible to pick up that denied deduction because of the fact that you're going to sell above where the debt is being incurred. Um, I do think it is worthwhile mentioning just in terms of, again, talking about transfer pricing rules and debt quantums. I think that that's going to be something interesting to see how that might be um, approached by the tax office, given that if we're looking at, say, real estate assets, you know, we can easily see senior debt at sort of uh, loan-to-value ratios up to 55 60%, which would be significantly above where the fixed ratio test might cap the interest deductions. But then on the other hand, if we look at the Australian REITs, they tend to have very conservative treasury policies that mean that they typically gear at below 40% overall gearing. And, and so you might see um, the approach of the tax office to those rules being different in the real asset sector than it might be to multinational groups. Good point, Scott, um, yeah, and a lot to consider there. And I think it comes back uh, to my point around choices earlier on as well. There's choices within the or the draft legislation around which method you might apply, but there are choices as to where you put your debt funding. And as you say, um, that can have some significant impacts if you have a trust structure, um, withholding trust and asset holding trusts, and it might be different depending on which part of the real asset spectrum you're sitting in as well. Um, so I think that comes back to um, really thinking through, modelling, understanding what the impact of those choices might be. So Scott, I know there are a lot of industry um, issues that the property industry in particular was thinking about um, before we saw the draft legislation. Were there any key items from that worth calling out that um, have not found their way in? Yeah, I would say that a lot of the issues we're talking about had, had been highlighted to Treasury before the exposure draft 
legislation was released and the draft legislation release doesn't really reflect um, or take into account any of those submission points that were made. It, it highlights the point you made earlier, Peter, that I think the rules are focused on corporate groups and making sure that the rules are applicable to corporate groups. And that just means that as the rules are drafted, if you're investing through trusts, you're at a disadvantage compared to a corporate group. And so the the consultation process will be really important just to, to get some of these basic issues around, you know, like making the external third-party debt test workable um, for, for real asset investment um, and achieving that change. Yep, so some really core fundamental issues and um, th this period of consultation will be key. It's a short period. Um, if with the intended start date from 1 July or income years from 1 July this year, um, it also really means there's got to be a clarity and sharpness in our submissions, doesn't it, Scott? Because Treasury probably isn't going to have a lot of time to come back and talk to industry again after they receive submissions. That's right, Peter. And I, I think the onus is, is, is on those people participating like ourselves, not just to identify the issues, but to identify what we think is a reasonable solution to those issues, just to help Treasury's considerations of the points that we're raising and to allow them to take those those points on board during consultation. Yep, absolutely right. So, Dennis, let's come back to you because there was a welcome announcement for superannuation funds, which are a large pool of capital. Um, what was it and did it go far yeah. enough? Thanks, Peter. It's a good point. And yes, you're right, it was at least welcome in so much as we saw acknowledgement of, as you say, super funds and their sort of increasing presence as outbound investors. So the, the measure was that complying Australian superannuation funds are carved out of what's called the associate entity definition. Um, it's what that means is that their domestic portfolio investments are not themselves pulled into the fin capitalisation rules just by virtue of being sort of held by one of these superannuation funds. So that, that's quite a welcome sort of rule that sort of acknowledges, I suppose, as I said, that role of superannuation funds being quite large investors. I suppose, as you said, does it go far enough is a really important question because whilst it is helpful for those sort of directly held investments of a super fund, um, I suppose the concern is that where you have investment holding entities underneath a superannuation fund that themselves hold multiple investments, um, you know, at least one of those is going to be an offshore control foreign entity, then sort of that, that investment entity itself can sort of get pulled back into the rules. Um, and so that can sort of almost start to taint the, the, all the investments of the investment holding entity. So on a simple level, it's, it's good news, but you're right, there's sort of a broader question here around how far does that go when you actually have a, almost like a platform for superannuation funds and they've got of themselves an offshore entity because you can sort of get them all pulled back into the rules again. Okay. So one, another one to keep in mind and for consultation. Um, Julian, financial services, um, where you, you play, um, what should financial services groups be thinking about with the rules? Yeah, Peter. So, um, you know, the the general proposition is that there are no there's no change to the thin cap rules that apply to either um, ADIs, so um, authorised deposit taking institutions, or um, entities that were classified as financial under um, the existing rules. There's probably two important um, buts that 
that need to follow that general statement. Um, the first is the point that I mentioned earlier around the expansion of the definition of debt deductions. Um, and so that applies to all taxpayers. So for financial entities that are in denial um, or are having interest deductions denied um, under the um, existing rules, there's the potential for there to be greater denial. But um, for financial entities, the debt deductions only becomes relevant um, if their um, debts exceed the safe harbour levels. So it's a little bit different to other taxpayers. Um, the second but is that the entities that qualify as um, financial entities for thin cap purposes um, has been significantly narrowed. Um, and so that was probably one of the surprises. Um, we thought the financial entities would, the, would remain unchanged. The rules have remained unchanged, but who is a financial entity has, has, um, has narrowed. Um, it's, it's those entities that were registered under the Financial Sector Collection of Data Act um, that lose that financial status. Um, where those entities, and, and as a broad pool, they're sort of the non-bank lenders, is probably the best description of them. Um, where they are earning true spread business, um, so interest income exceeds interest expense, you would expect the thin capitalisation rules to have no real operation for them. Um, but where the uh, where, where the relevant taxpayers are, say, leasing entities or um, are not earning true interest income. So the you know some of the buy now pay later examples where it's fees and charges. It might be interest free, but there's fees and charges, or you're deriving your income from the merchants who are able to offer um, your facility. That there might be some considerations um, for those entities, Peter. Yeah, thanks, Julian. Um, that's that's good to keep in mind as well. Um, now, for our listeners, we're not going to touch on other sectors now, but the impacts across other sectors will differ depending on uh, profitability, group structure, entities used, a range of different factors. So um, for other sectors, we do encourage you to reach out to your usual KPMG contacts to discuss what this means um, because it will mean different things um, across, uh, across the landscape. Okay, team. So... Really good discussion today. I think um, I think we just touched on a whole range of issues that we'll no doubt be talking more about in time to come. If we could wrap up now, and if I could get your final thoughts on one or two things um, that groups subject to these rules should be thinking about right now. Um, so, uh, Dennis, why don't we start with you? Right. And I think, Peter, I'll go back to my first point, which isn't strictly on FinCap, but is on this production for outbound investors. It is... Are you able to determine where you know, that, that those debt funding, what's it funding? Is it your offshore subsidiaries? Is it domestic? Do you have some basis to actually be able to allocate that? Um, and again, as we said at the start, make sure when you're considering new investments, um, you're obviously sort of taking into account where you might fund that from. Is, is it now more local as opposed to all from Australia? Sophie, what would you like to leave with our listeners? Peter, I think you said it really well earlier, which is um, that this, from a transfer pricing perspective, this analysis is going to actually become more complicated in that clients are going to have to test 
the arm's length nature of the quantum of debt in addition to the arm's length nature of the interest. And Scott? I'd leave people with two things. Firstly, it's really important to model what the potential outcomes are. And secondly, particularly in the real estate and infrastructure fund space, it's not only important to look at what your own situation is, but to look to see who you might be associated with and understand how they might be approaching these new tests. Yep. Julian? Um, Peter, the package of changes that we've got clearly designed to collect revenue. Um, it's clearly designed to deny taxpayers deductions. Um, whether it does so or not in a fair and equitable way um, and whether the outcomes are appropriate, I think is, is, is really yet to be seen. Um, and, and I don't think there's going to be a lot of appetite from Treasury to, um, to move on some of the fundamentals that we've talked about today. And I think what that means is when you put together the transfer pricing changes, the 2590 apportionment that Dennis has talked about, what these rules do is reduce certainty, increase the need for judgment, and increase the potential for disagreement and dispute with the tax office, right? And, you know, in other measures that we've seen introduced, um, are we going to get compliance guidance from the tax office? What is that going to look like and how are we going to go about implementing it? But um, there is certainly, um, as I said, the potential for disagreement and dispute increases following the introduction of these rules. Yeah, spot on. It's, I think that's a really good realistic assessment, Julian. And, and to add to that, when will we get any guidance from the tax office, considering that from 1 July this year, only a few months away, um, you need to start thinking about your debt and what it was used to fund. Um, and uh, you will yeah, probably also have to think about these measures being substantively enacted by then and what you're going to put in 30 June accounts if you need to. So, um, no, I think that's a really good summary and uh, team, fantastic insights. So thank you very much for your time today. To our listeners, uh, we thank you. We are always grateful for you taking the time to listen to us. We hope you found this useful. Um, there's a lot to think about, but we're really keen to hear from you. So please do reach out to any of us or your usual KPMG contact with any thoughts, questions, or issues. KPMG will be making a submission on this and we'd love to hear from you um, so that we can make sure we've got a, a good view reflected in our submission as well. So on behalf of the team, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPMG Tax Now podcast. If you'd like to ask us a question, please send us an email at kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. Be sure to subscribe at kpmg.com forward slash au forward slash tax now or follow our LinkedIn page KPMG Tax Now Insights for regular updates. That's all for now. We look forward to sharing more insights with you soon.